What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for kicking off your week with us. This is your Monday edition of Fantasy MLB Today. We are a Sports Ethos presentation, of course, and I'm your host, Joe Orico. You guys can find me over on Twitter at JoeOrico99 and also at EthosFantasyBB. We're still posting daily content over there that would right now be these podcasts. And like I've been teasing, this month we are going to start to get back on the written side. I've given the guys a little bit of time off, but we are going to start ramping up our work for 2024. Of course, we're going to look back at 2023 first, which we have been doing on these podcasts. But we're going to start getting everybody ready for 2024 because I know... If you are still listening to fantasy baseball podcasts in November, October, November, in this part of the offseason, you're probably already thinking about your drafts for next year. So we're going to start getting you guys ready very soon. There's going to be a lot of content on the site, on the written side. And of course, you guys will have these podcasts here every single day for you as well. It's been a while since I've been behind the microphone. I was in Arizona at the first pitch conference. If you guys have been following on Twitter, not just me, but if you're following anybody in the fantasy world, odds are you saw some pictures from Arizona. Hopefully that encourages you guys to get out there for next year. There's no better time if you are into baseball, fantasy baseball. You don't have to be like an absolute addict like we are to enjoy the weekend either. You can go to a couple games. You can sit around and have a few beers. You can go to the conferences, the podcasts. You don't have to be fully inundated with fantasy the whole time. Because I know that's a concern for a couple people is, I like baseball, but I don't want to just be 24-7 fantasy baseball talk. That's not what it is. You socialize with people. You talk with old friends. You make new friends. You go for dinner. Uh, you know, there's obviously a, a large baseball element, but it's really a great social event as well. So I want to shout out everybody at Baseball HQ from Brent and Ray on down. You guys do an incredible job of bringing the community together and having these incredible events day after day. The only complaint that I have is that it's not longer. I would happily go for a week. I think a lot of people would say the same if they were able to logistically do so. It's a great time hanging out with some old friends and making some new friends as well. And we're going to talk a little bit about one of the events that happened there, and that is the draft that I took place in. It's the second year in a row we are doing this podcast because last year I did this draft as well. And I came second in the league. I did very well in the early draft champions. If you're not familiar with draft champions, you draft 50 rounds, and that's it for the year. You do not get to pick up players who you have at the beginning is who you're going to have all season. You still set your lineups, of course. It's a weekly lineups for pitchers and twice weekly for hitters, Monday through Thursday, Friday through Sunday. As we usually see, if you're familiar with the NFBC, that's nothing out of the ordinary there. What is out of the ordinary is drafting in November a little bit. Now, some of you are doing a couple of drafts. I've seen it. There are drafts now available on the NFBC site. If you guys are looking to get into some drafts, you can do it. Now, this one is featuring some people that you guys probably know. I'm in the same league as my good friend Frank Stample for the second straight year. Kevin Hastings as well uh, from PitcherList. Kevin is a host of the On the Wire podcast, very good friend as well. We've been beside each other in this draft for the last two seasons, uh, sniping each other back and forth, throwing dirty looks at across at each other. Uh, Kevin, if you're listening, always a great time as well. And, of course, Jenny Butler is another well-known person who was in this draft. She was picking first, and despite the fact that I was picking eighth and I was seven spots away from Jenny, it felt like I was getting sniped every single time by her. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I would always have somebody up for that round thinking, okay, I'm going to take whoever it was. In the fifth, it was Aaron Nola. Um, in the 10th, it was Logan O'Hoppy. In the 16th, it was Jeremy Pena. There was like uh, at least six times where Jenny sniped me from six or seven spots away. So it was a very sharp room. Like I said, uh, I did well in this league last year, and I came out of this league last year very confident in the team that I had drafted. I talked about it a lot throughout the season. It was my favorite team probably because I had Kevin Gosman, Spencer Strider, and Corbin Burns. I had Mookie Betts. I had Jose Altuve. I had Gunnar Henderson. It was a very strong team, and I loved it right from day one. 
This team I do not like nearly as much. It's a team that I liked a lot through the first round. Literally the first pick that I made, I felt very good about. And then it just became a snipe fest, and I wasn't able to get the guys that I wanted really. So it did become kind of an exercise of trying to find replacements for my main targets, which can be good in and of itself because that's just the way that these drafts work. You might have a, a perfect solid plan laid out, and then it just gets thrown to shit by other people taking your guys. So we're going to talk a little bit about these picks. Now, like I said, it's a 50-round it's a draft, but we did 23 rounds now. <clears throat> we're going to pick up in January online uh, and go rounds 24 through 50. But we did 23, and we're going to talk about those today, specifically focusing on my picks. So in the first round, I had a clear plan going in. I wanted Freddie Freeman at pick eight. If I didn't get Freddie Freeman, I was probably going with my guy, Spencer Strider. You guys know how much I love Spencer Strider. If you've even listened to the show one time, you probably have heard me talk about how much I love Spencer Strider. It was one or the other. Now, Freddie Freeman, I think it should be in a lot of cases and probably won't be a top five pick because people are still worried about, oh, he's getting older. I don't know if I can count on the steals and whatever. He just gets better and better with age. If you look at dollar values, WRC+, plus. if you look across the board, his numbers are ridiculous. And I am thinking, like a lot of people that Shohei Otani might as well already have a Dodger jersey on, so that's just going to make that lineup even better. There's no reason not to take Freddie Freeman in the middle of the first round. And here in the eighth pick, 15-team draft, it's exactly where I was, smack in the middle. So I'm very, very happy that Freddie Freeman did not get picked. The, early, the first round, I'll just read out the first round to you guys. Ronald Acuna at one. Bobby Witt Jr. at two, and then Julio Rodriguez, Mookie Betts, Corbin Carroll, Kyle Tucker, Trey Turner went at pick seven, and then Freeman, myself, at eight. Spencer Strider went ninth. Jose Ramirez, 10. Matt Olson, 11. Bryce Harper, 12. Fernando Tatis, 13. Juan Soto, 14. And Aaron Judge at pick 15. Pretty much what you would expect. There was nothing really crazy there. I think Matt Olson's ADP is slightly outside of the first round, and he did go in the first round. But there's really nothing too crazy about picking uh, Matt Olson in the first round, considering how great he is in and of himself, and then that ridiculous, ridiculous lineup that he is surrounded by. So there's no real surprises there in the first round. Uh, coming back to me in the second round, I really wanted Austin Riley. Had Austin Riley on a few teams last year. I've talked about him, and I've actually talked about him and Freddie Freeman together a lot if you've been listening to these shows that we've done in the offseason, and even just during the season as well, that they are two of the most consistent players in fantasy. Not saying they're the two best players, but in terms of consistency, drafting them and knowing what you're going to get, the quote-unquote write-it-down-in-pen kind of players before the season. I wanted Austin Riley there. He got taken one pick before me. So I went and I took Raphael Devers, and I think that that's a pretty decent backup plan there. I didn't want to be waiting too, too long. Uh, third base is still a position, I think, that is not the greatest. There are players you can get, of course, further down, but in terms of actually you know, having an anchor at that spot, there's really not too many outside of the first couple rounds. And even some of those guys going inside the first couple rounds are not really that safe. Manny Machado just had surgery. And we, I think he's going to maybe miss a little bit of time to start the year. We're going to dig into that uh, a little bit more throughout the offseason, Manny Machado and his outlook. Ellie De La Cruz is going in the second round. I don't know how safe he is. The upside is ridiculous. But in terms of the safety, the floor, it's not really there. So I think Rafael Devers getting him in round two, I'll take that absolutely. Freeman and Devers. The only problem there really is there's not a hell of a lot of stolen bases. Now, maybe Freddie Freeman can kind of replicate what he did last year and give you 20-some-odd stolen bases. I'm not going to bank on that. I'm going to probably project Freddie Freeman for like, you know, 13 or 15 maybe, and it might even be fewer than that. And I just have to kind of brace myself that I might not be a strong speed team. But I think in terms of the overall output I'm getting from Freeman Endeavors, it's a nice one-two punch to have there for sure. 
Now, in the third round, I really wanted Kevin Gosman. Kevin Gosman is going to be, and he is currently ranked as my number two starting pitcher for 2024. That's without my full projections being done. That's just based on my initial feel uh, without actually crunching the numbers. He is the number two starting pitcher that I have right now. Now, he went after Strider. He went after Cole. Otani, we're not going to count as a pitcher because he's not going to pitch next season. Uh, and he went after Zach Wheeler, Corbin Burns, and Luis Castillo. So if this is the price that you're paying on Gosman somewhere in the third round, I'll take him. The problem is he went two picks before my slot, and I really, really wanted Kevin Gosman. So I pivoted, and I took Luis Robert. Luis Robert in the third round, and I, I, I know I set myself back a little bit in terms of my pitching because you go the first three rounds and don't take any pitchers, you are just going to naturally kind of miss out a little bit there. And there was a huge run of pitchers starting in round four and then continuing into round five and six. A vast majority of the pitches in round in those rounds there, uh, starting from about the you know middle of the third round through honestly about the middle of the sixth round, more than fifty percent of those picks were pitchers easily. So I knew I was going to start to miss out a little bit. I'm not getting that top top tier ace, but I'm still getting Luis Robert. And Luis Robert is somebody who has been drafted uh, drafted inside the first round in some cases this year, and it's justified. Justified, I think as long as we're willing to also assume that there is some injury risk there. Because that's that's Luis Robert. He had a full season this year. He played 145 games. But there is still a long track record of history, uh, tra- track record of injuries. So, I mean, there is still some risk to be had there. There's risk with anybody, right? And I'm taking, if I wanted to take a pitcher, and I did take a pitcher, then I would probably still be looking at that pick as having injury risk because, you know, pitchers are inherently very risky. If you look at stats, if you look at everything, uh, pitcher injuries have generally gone up these last several years. But Luis Robert is somebody who did just have a healthy season, 145 games, 38 dingers, 20 stolen bases, batted 264, which was not ideal. It was definitely trending a lot better than that for the season. And then he did kind of tail off batting average-wise down the stretch in the month of September, only batted 206. So he did take away from that overall batting average a little bit. Still somebody that's very capable of giving you a 280 or higher batting average and capable of giving you first-round value. So getting him in the third round there, I'm taking that every single day. I do wish I'd had a pitcher in the first three rounds, but looking at the guys that I have, it's kind of hard to be upset with it, really. It's a really strong base of batting average, of power. And I know steals aren't going to be great, but if Freddie's able to replicate what he did last year and give me 20, and I'm able to get 20-something out of Lou Bob, he gave you 20 this year, and I think the speed is actually you know probably a 25-steal guy, if we're being honest, then I'm probably okay. You are able to compete in stolen bases. I think you need more to compete, but they're also more available. So I can fill in a little bit, probably, uh, some guys down the stretch. And I did pick some guys that I, I do feel pretty confident about in terms of their stolen bases. So... Freeman, Devers, and Lubob in the first three rounds. In the fourth round, I knew I was taking a pitcher. I couldn't go any farther at this point and not take one. The guys that went off the board between my third and fourth round picks in terms of starters were Pablo Lopez, Zach Allen, and Freddie Peralta. I really like Pablo Lopez. I really like all of them, really. But the guy that I ended up taking here was George Kirby. George Kirby is somebody that I think will be generally kind of undervalued in a lot of cases. Now, when I was doing my draft, there was a draft going on in the room next to us, and there was no dividing wall. We were all just yelling out our picks, and we were seeing what was going on in both rooms. It was kind of fun. And the other room featured many people. You guys know Justin Mason, Paul Spore, tons of people, Britton Allen. There was a lot of people, and Sarah Sanchez as well, uh, who you guys know, who are very sharp. And George Kirby went in the third round of that draft. So taking him in the fourth, getting him a little bit later than the other room, I'll take that every single day, twice on Sunday, of course. Now, I'd like to have a little bit more stability in strikeouts in terms of my ace. 
George Kirby is a fairly average guy in terms of his Ks. He's pretty much right in line with league average, about 22%. But I'm also getting incredible control. You know, you're not getting somebody who's ever going to really walk anybody. A career walk rate at this point of 3.2%. And we're talking about 320 innings at this point. The control is legit. The whips should always be kept under wraps because he's not going to allow that many base runners in terms of the walks. And not to say that that's, you know, a perfect recipe for having a low whip, but it's definitely a huge part of it for sure. 2.5% walk rate this year is absolutely ridiculous. Now, will he be able to keep that up to the same extent? I don't know if it'll be 2% again, but he's somebody that we know is, is going to have great control. His control is, is just excellent. If you look at his advanced stats, you look at his pitching estimators, they're pretty in line with what he did this year. 335 ERA, he had a 334 FIP, a 363 XFIP, and he had a 371 Sierra. He is definitely one of the elite pitchers in baseball. I know people don't really view him in that manner, especially because of some of the comments that he said late in the season about one game where he had assumed that he was going to be pulled and he went back out and the start ended up getting blown up and people started looking down on him because of that. I mentioned it at the time, you know, we've conditioned pitchers to, we as a whole, not me, we, the baseball world, has conditioned pitchers to know they're throwing either six innings or 100 pitches, pretty much whatever comes quicker, and you're not really going to go much farther than that. Usually, honestly, not even that far. A lot of the times we'll see pitchers throw five innings or not even make it to five, 80 pitches, 75 pitches, whatever it is. Hard to really blame Kirby for that. If people are going to discount him, this, you know, take away value from Kirby because of something like that, let them. He pitches for a very good team. The strikeouts have shown flashes at times of being closer to like 24, 25%. And I think overall you're getting a really solid player in George Kirby. If you're getting him where I was taking him, which is in the fourth round of a 15-teamer, so you're talking in the 50s overall, mid-50s overall, I'm going to be very happy with that, and I'm going to do it pretty much every single time. So through the first four rounds, I was kind of happy, kind of not at the same time with my team. And then I took on a pretty big risk in round five. And I think it's justified risk, but it's also something that could really blow up in my face. Mike Trout was still sitting there in round five. And based on the run of pitching, I probably could have waited another round before taking him. I don't know that it was necessarily like then or never, but I think there's also a subconscious part that is you're seeing Mike Trout there in round five, and the brain almost doesn't know what to react to that. Doesn't know it's almost malfunctions because Mike Trout is never in that range. He's always round one, round one, round one, round one, going back now for a decade more. I know last year he was kind of falling into the second round, but to see him in round five, I couldn't pass it up. Even if you're only getting a hundred games out of Mike Trout, I think you're going to get really great production. And as a fifth round pick. If he's any, you know, if he's 80% of what Mike Trout usually is, 75, 80%, then I'm going to smash that pick there. I probably should have taken another pitcher. And this one was more an emotional one than a rational decision. When you're drafting this time of year, sometimes that's going to happen before you fully have your rankings, projections, whatever down. It was probably a mistake, but it could also really be beneficial. It's a five outfielder league, so having a couple outfielders off the bat in him and Luis Robert, granted not the most stable ones, is something that I'm definitely for. Um, it could be great. It could be terrible. But as of right now, I don't love it. I definitely don't love it, considering all the questions about Trout's health, the team around him. It's probably not going to be great. So there are some questions, but to see Mike Trout there in round five, if he's even able to, you know, be healthy for three quarters of the season and give you 80% of his usual production, I think it'll be a really good pick there. 
Now, closers were flying off the board. Closers were going, I think, pretty much every team had a closer by this point. So I took one of the few great closers that are remaining there is Paul Seawald. I know our most recent viewing of him in the World Series was not ideal. Paul Seawald is still somebody who is one of the better closers in baseball. We saw it over the course of the season. 34 saves. He's given you an ERA that is going to be roughly three. We've seen that for the last three years now. It's 312, 267, 306. Giving you good strikeouts. The walks are not amazing, but it's pretty standard closer stuff. You know, he's giving you about 30% strikeout rate, less than 10% walk rate is good. I have no problem with it. I, I wish, again, that he was like my second closer, but even as a first closer here, I really don't mind. I took Ryan Helsley a couple rounds later, so those two are the main closers that I have, and then I added another one later on. So between those two, I think I'll probably be okay um, the between those two guys, though, is the really interesting one. Is somebody that I've talked up a lot, somebody that I am going to pretty much have in every single league, and that's Zach Eflin. I'm especially going to have him in pretty much every single league. If he is going in the seventh round, I don't understand why people are continuing to pass up Zach Eflin after the year that he just had. I don't get it. If you have concerns about injury risks, then fair, because he does have a fairly long injury history. But, I mean, pick 100 or a round pick 100 for a guy who was just a top five pitcher in baseball this past season, fantasy-wise, I don't understand it. You have 3-5 ERA and all the different pitching indicators, the ERA estimators, were lower than 3-5. He was screwed to his 3-5 ERA. It should have been a lot lower. It should have been in the 3-1 or 3-2 range. He's another guy with incredible control, 3.4 walk rate, and a 26% strikeout rate that we saw him have here in his first year in Tampa Bay. I think he can keep it up. I think that it's sustainable. I've had this conversation with a lot of people in the industry. A lot of people think that I'm too high on Zach Eflin, and maybe I am. But even if I'm too high on him, taking him around pick 100 or so is always going to pay off, I think, as long as he doesn't get hurt, as long as he's healthy. And, of course, that's you know you could caveat a lot of players with as long as they're healthy. But as, assuming that Zach Eflin is able to give you – you know, what was it last year, 177 innings. If he's able to give you 160 or so innings, there's no reason why he can't generally replicate what he did last season. Like I said, Ryan Helsley in round eight, I took, I feel pretty confident about as long as the Cardinals don't mess around with anybody else. Because I know Helsley's got some arbitration years, and I know sometimes teams can be kind of weird about wanting to have closers or relievers get saves uh, and boost their price through arbitration. I don't think that's a big worry. Rob DiPietro, who I was able to meet in person, uh, Pull Hitter Podcast host, great meeting him. He was able to alleviate some of my concerns about Helsley as well. Another thing that's great about this conference is you get to just pick the mind of some of the best fantasy players and baseball minds that there are uh, in the community and probably in the world, honestly. So you kind of get to have a little bit of insight from people that you normally wouldn't have access to. I mean, you can message people, you can DM people, but to actually have them right there and be like, hey, Rob, I was walking down the hallway. I said, Rob, what do you think of my draft? What do you think? And I said, I took Helsley. I'm not 100% sure. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're good. Uh, I, I like where you take Helsley. So he was able to make me feel a little bit better about that pick in round eight. And I think at that point, Helsley and Seawald is a pretty solid one-two combo. 15-team leagues, it's very tough to find two really solid closers. Because at that point, you know, everybody is – I mean, you can probably find two, but there's always going to be somebody who picks a third. There was somebody in our draft who took Edwin Diaz, Josh Hader, and Juan Duran. And that was in the first five rounds. So there you're going to see, like, right there, one team out of those top 15 or out of the 15 teams in the league is not going to have those two closers just because somebody has three already, just the way that the math works out. So they do start to go off the board a little bit quicker, especially once one goes, they all start to go. So I'm glad I was able to have a couple of solid, solid closers there. 
Next, I went with Josh Naylor, and I honestly probably didn't need Josh Naylor. This was a situation where I wanted a couple of other players who were sniped right in front of me. Yainer Diaz. I was going to take Yainer Diaz, the catcher. We got news while we were in Arizona. Again, there's no manager yet in Houston, but there we, got, we got the news from the general manager that he's expected to be the number one catcher. That right there was enough to shoot him up draft boards in Arizona, and he was going to the ninth round as opposed to about the 11th round or so, I believe, uh, where he was going before Arizona, 10th or 11th, and he was going to the ninth. You'll see that slowly creep up a little bit, especially if we have confirmation in two catcher leagues, especially that he is going to be the catcher. He's, he's going to be pushed up. Now, after him, I said, okay, I'm going to take Castellanos. Castellanos gets drafted. And I say, okay, I'm going to go Bryson Stott, and Bryson Stott gets drafted. And there's a one-minute live pick clock. I was scrambling a little bit. I went with Josh Naylor. Josh Naylor... I'm a little bit biased towards obviously being a Canadian guy, but Josh Naylor also like was incredible this season. I think a lot of people will kind of forget how good he was. He did miss some time close to the end of the season, but Josh Naylor batted 308 with 17 homers and 10 stolen bases, drove in 97 runs in 121 games for a terrible offense, terrible offense. And he still drove in 97 runs. Now he only scored 52, but when you're driving in 97, you got a 308 average. You're producing from four categories there. Uh, yeah, I, I'm okay with it. And another pick that Rob was kind of, you know, I think is, I said, maybe I'd jump Naylor too uh, early. And he's like, oh, there's, never, there's no such thing. You can't do it. You can't do it. And, you know, it did make me feel a little bit better. He's going to have to be in a corner spot or he's going to have to be in a utility slot, but I'm okay with it. Uh, I'm very happy to have that production. And I have a Canadian on my team I can cheer for, which I'm going to have a bunch of different teams. I'm going to have a bunch of different players, but it's nice to know that I'm going to have uh, at least one share of Josh Naylor, who is from the same general area that I am from. Saw him play uh, back in the day once or twice, a couple times, actually, him and his brother. So it's good to have him on my team, be able to cheer for him. Wilson Contreras is the guy I took in round 10, and I tweeted this out earlier today, and I should mention it again, probably, um, just on the show. I, I tweeted it out, but these are the players that I have shares of across the first two drafts that I've done. Contreras is one of them. I missed Helsley. He's the guy I have in two drafts as well. And then I'll talk about the others as we get there. But Contreras is one of the guys that I've drafted on both teams. I like what he did in the second half. I like the Cardinals to bounce back as a whole. And I think the second year of a contract is a big thing. Once, And I know it's, you know, I don't know what the actual data says on it. I could be right. I could be wrong. I think once you're settled into a situation for a year plus, or maybe it doesn't even take a year. Sometimes you saw with Trey Turner, it takes about half a season. Yeah, okay, whatever it's going to take. Contreras figured it out. It, it did take him a little while, but eventually he was there and batted over 300 in the second half. And this offense was actually really good. You know, we talked about this a little bit in Arizona as well. Uh, Ryan Bloomfield and I were talking about this at one point. The Cardinals' offense was really good. It was the Cardinals' pitching that sucked. You know, if their pitching had been even just decent this year, the Cardinals are probably a playoff team for most of the season. And granted, their offense kind of tailed off in September a little bit. So if you look at the season-long rankings for certain things, then they're a little bit lower than they were if you were looking throughout the season. But they're generally still a top 10 or 12 offense. A guy like Wilson Contreras in the middle of that order that I don't think is going to look terribly worse. I think they're going to be about the same offensively. I'll take him there in round 10. Now, if it's a one-catcher league, I'm probably, maybe I would take him around this spot too. Probably push him down a little bit though because you just need to have those two catchers secured a little bit earlier in those two catcher leagues. But Wilson Contreras in round 10, I'll take it all the time. Now I needed to get some stolen bases. Now I was looking at this team and I was thinking, oh, shit, I may have zero steals. Well, I mean, not zero. Lou Bob's going to get some. Freddie will get some. Maybe crossing fingers, Trout will get one or two. Um, but 
I didn't really have many steals. And that's where Tyro Estrada comes in. I took Tyro Estrada here in round 11. I get a couple positions of eligibility, which is really nice in a DC where you are going to have to move players around throughout the season. It's just the nature of the beast. Players are going to get hurt. You're not going to be able to slot a guy in. You know, I've talked about it a lot on shows. If you're talking a 10 or 12 team league, you draft a guy, you put him in your second base slot. Odds are he's probably going to be in your second base slot the whole year, especially if he's drafted, you know, the first 10 rounds or so, whatever. What you're talking about a DC, a draft champions, draft and hold format, whatever you want to call it on your particular site or your particular friend group calls it, you are going to have to move players around more because there are just no pickups, right? You're having to deal with what you had from the start of the season. So a guy who has second and short eligibility like Estrada, I think is going to be really beneficial. We're also talking about a guy who generally was in his 120 games, giving you five category production, 14 homers, 23 steals and a 271 batting average. There's also a pretty good reason to believe that San Francisco is going to be stealing more coming into next year, and we will talk about that as well throughout the offseason. Uh, some key information that we do have, and it's public information, not something that I have. I'm not trying to say I have anything secretive or anything, but there is some information out there that would lead you to believe San Francisco is going to be stealing more, and Tyro Estrada could be a candidate to do a Hassan Kim this year and go from a 10-12 steal season to like a 35-40 steal season. I'm not banking on that, but I'm definitely hoping for 20-25 steals out of Tyro there. Round 12, I took Nick Pavetta. Nick Pavetta, I, I haven't done my pitcher shows yet, but Nick Pavetta is somebody that got a lot of hype at the end of the season. He was one of the best pitchers in the second half, looking at, looking like an ace uh, for a lot of it. 30-plus percent strikeout rate, good control. He was just looking amazing. If the Red Sox put him in the rotation, and if he's able to get 25 starts, I think I'm going to be pretty happy. I've taken him on both of these teams so far. I don't want to have too many Nick Pavetta shares because we do know that Nick Pavetta, eh, not the most consistent player. Uh, if you're talking his whole career, there have been some ups and downs for sure. So this is probably the end of my Pavetta. I might get him on one more team. We'll see. I'm not going to be trying to draft him all over the place, though, because, it, first of all, the price is going to go up because pitching prices generally do go up. There will be think pieces. There will be people who are talking throughout the offseason of Nick Pavetta's second half, and that will just push the price up through the roof. We've already seen it with certain players, right? The second half production has made prices just stupid. Ellie De La Cruz and Royce Lewis in the second. And you've seen you've seen that kind of thing. Uh, and a lot of it's because, you know, specifically with, the, uh, with Royce Lewis, because their second half production. And before those articles come out and people start pushing everybody up, I want to start taking uh, those guys that I do have a lot of faith in. Pitchers will be more expensive generally anyway you add, you know, a round or two at least, especially in these kind of formats and NFBC leagues, to pitchers. Um, when you're drafting this time of year because come February, March, people do want to have those anchors and you will see guys like Spencer Strider. Like he won't go number one in any leagues, I don't think, but he'll go number two. Like Strider will be taken as the number two behind Ronald Acuna in a good number of leagues, especially if you are looking at the high dollar value of leagues, it will happen. And there's no reason for it not to happen. Uh, he is, and I'm not specifically talking Strider there, uh, excuse me, but pitchers are going to be pushed up because you do want to have more stability uh, and not have to stream pitchers as much. It's easier to stream batters than pitchers. Generally speaking, they're not going to hurt you as much, right? There's two ratio categories versus one. So you don't want to have to be streaming so much. People will push up their pitchers for that reason and for other reasons as well. So getting Pavetta in round 12, he'll probably be going inside the top 150 picks uh, come February and March. So I'm happy to get him here in round 12. Round 13 is another pick that I wasn't crazy about, but I did want to take another outfielder here and kind of not secure the position because you still need another couple, but get somebody that I feel pretty confident in, especially about his growth potential uh, year after year, and that's Riley Green. 
Riley Green did not have an amazing second half, but he's still somebody who, as a whole, put together a pretty decent season. Only 99 games, but 11 homers, 7 steals, and a 288 batting average. Another team that is getting better up and coming around him, Torkelson and Kerry Carpenter, really good. Really, really good players that I think are probably going to just keep getting better. I know uh, that's not something you can just blanket statement, all young players are going to get better. But, I mean... <sighs> I think that these guys are on a very good path to just continue uh, their progression. Torkelson just hit 30 bombs. Kerry Carpenter, I mean, I don't think he got the 30, but he wasn't too far behind him. Uh, I actually can't remember now if Carpenter got the 30. He might have. Let me just pull up his number. No, he only had 20, but 278 batting average. Like, they were looking really good offensively. Riley Green over the course of a whole season, you're probably looking at somebody who can be a 2020 player, and the batting average is something that seems to be pretty stable. Always been in the minor leagues. I'm thinking this team is going to be really, really solid batting average-wise. Between the guys that I have in terms of Freeman, Devers, Lou Bob is somebody that can have great batting average. Trout can have great batting average. Josh Naylor, Green. I think this team has a potential to lead the league in batting average, lead this particular league in batting average. Definitely a chance. Uh, but I think that Riley Green over the course of a full season can do great things. And I think in round 13, at this point, you're getting close to pick 200. Uh, I have no problem with him there. Now, round 14, there was another name that was just kind of falling and falling and falling. And I've talked about how, even in this offseason, throughout the playoffs, we've talked about this guy as somebody that I'm not going to be terribly interested in. It's Max Scherzer. I, I ended up taking Max Scherzer. Again, it's round 14 of a 15-team uh, league. So you're talking at this point, this was, I believe, just after pick 200. Right in that range. Uh, and you're talking about Max Scherzer. You're I think it was pick 203. 202, 203. Max Scherzer is somebody that I don't have a ton of faith in like I did in years past. But still, if you look at what he did this past season, it was 152 innings of a 377 ERA, and that was the worst we'd seen from him. Strikeouts were down, yeah, walks were up a little bit. But still, you are talking about a 28% strikeout rate, a 377 ERA, and indicators that are generally in the same vicinity. Sierra of 377. You're looking at a 328 XERA, a 402 XFIP. Again, after pick 200, I'm pretty happy with it. Like I'm saying, I was saying more that I'm not taking Max Scherzer in leagues this year because I didn't expect him to fall this much. Like I was really thinking Max Scherzer, especially because I talked about this. He pitched in the playoffs, he came back, he showed that he wasn't, you know, and it wasn't the greatest performances. But he showed he was healthy. You know, he was actually able to go out there and pitch, right? I thought that that would move his price up a lot, but maybe it actually had the reverse effect of what I was thinking it would. People saw and they're like, oh, maybe he's just, you know, not Max Scherzer anymore. The pick where I took him is the highest, or I guess I should say the lowest, that Max Scherzer has been drafted in any league so far this season in the NFBC. His ADP is 114. His minimum pick is 61. The maximum was 172 until I took him here after pick 200. At that point, you're setting max picks on a guy who could very realistically give you one more really great season, even if it's not great, even if it's a 3-7 ERA. To get that and 28% strikeout rate, or even let's say it regresses to 26-27, after pick 200, I'll take that every single day for Max Scherzer. I don't have a ton of faith necessarily that he's going to get back to old form, but he doesn't really need to at this price either. All right, now we went with a fun pick. We went with Jackson Holiday in round 15, and this is, I think, honestly, a pretty good price. Jackson Holiday should start the year with Baltimore at the big league club. I got him not at the max pick. Uh, his max pick is 279. 
but I got him at like 218, 220, something like in that range. And I think he's somebody that could start the season with a big league club and have one of those Corbin Carroll, Julio, Bobby Witt type impacts right off the bat. He's somebody that if we hear he is making, the, you know, if he's making uh, the club, if he's in spring training and we hear, yep, Jackson Holiday's going to be on the opening day roster, you're going to see him go in the fourth round, third round. We saw it last year with Corbin Carroll. Now, granted, he had a little bit of a sample size the year prior, but Corbin Carroll's sample size in 2022 wasn't like, you know, some world beater. He looked okay. But then people were taking him in the second round, and it panned out. Jackson Holiday has that same kind of potential. He could be somebody that very, very realistically gets pushed up, not into like the. I don't think he'll go in the second round, but I think he could very easily be a third or fourth round player in a lot of leagues. He hits a couple of spring home runs. People are going to lose their shit. He is going to be flying, flying up the draft board. So to get him at this range, round 15, he was the first shortstop that I took which is a little bit of a risk for sure. Uh, but when there are 50 rounds, I'll be able to plug somebody in, assuming it doesn't work out for him. But it's a draft and hold. I, I don't need it to pan out immediately for this to still pay dividends. Even if he doesn't make the team, even if he comes up after a month, I'm getting Jackson Holiday a lot later than most, if not everybody, is going to be getting him. So I'm totally fine with that as well. Tyler O'Neill is the guy I took in round 16, and he is another guy that is a mainstay on both of my teams so far. I, I I don't know what St. Louis is going to do. I'm hoping they trade him because it does not seem to be a good union. Either that or they trade Marmol because Marmol really seems to not like Tyler O'Neill. The skills are there. The skills are there for him to do what he did in 2021 again. In 138 games, he had 34 homers and stole 15 bags, batted 286. It has not worked out that way the last couple of years. Health has gotten in the way, and also just a stupid manager has gotten in the way. Honestly, Marmol has not done a good job. We've seen disconnect in the clubhouse. We've seen weird shit. Like Wilson Contreras was considered to be a candidate for outfield play last year. And we just seen bad decisions, bad decisions, bad decisions for, for a while now. So I'm hoping either he gets fired, which I'm not holding my breath for, or Tyler O'Neill gets traded and they give him a fresh start somewhere else. In that case, I mean, I think it'll be a really great year for O'Neill. It could, it could potentially be, one of the steals of the draft, if O'Neill is even able to get back to some degree what he did in 2021. If he hits 25 homers and steals 15 bases and bats 270, at this point in the draft, you know, after pick 200 or so, it's a case where you're not really going to hurt yourself so much. Now, it is a draft champions, so you don't get the luxury of adding and replacing players here, but O'Neill is somebody that doesn't need to do a hell of a lot to pay off at this price, where he's going, and I think he's just going to keep falling even more, honestly. People are not that interested in him, and where I took him was a little bit earlier than where he was going. I just wanted to secure myself Tyler O'Neill. You're probably going to get him close to round 20 in a lot of cases, and I'm talking 15-team leagues. You're probably going to get him maybe not round 20, but like 18, 17 kind of range, close to pick 300, and there's no downside really at that point. If he's healthy, and again, I know, if he's healthy, if he's healthy, if he's healthy, but he's shown us that he can be healthy in the past. He's had a couple of bad injury plague seasons, but I'm not going to use that as something that I'm going to use against Tyler O'Neill at this point of his career. I don't want to say that he's like, you know, what, how old is Tyler O'Neill? I think he's 25. He's 20, sorry, he's 28. Actually, I thought, wow, he's older than I thought he was, but still, he's not somebody that I'm ready to worry about at this point, considering what we have seen from him in the past. The fact that, you know, even if he doesn't get traded, even if they just give him regular run, which is also a possibility, he's in one of the better lineups in baseball. So I think there's a lot of angles where it could definitely work out for Tyler O'Neill. It could be a bust pick. Absolutely. 
but I think there's more likelihood of it working out in the long run than it not working out for him. Next up, we went with Ryan McMahon, and Ryan McMahon is another one of those guys that is just really consistent. It's not to the same level as the guys we were talking about before, Freeman and Austin Riley, but if you look at the last three seasons, 23, 20, and 23 homers, 86, 67, and 70 RBI, 80, 67, and 80 runs scored, 245, or 246, 254, and 240 batting average. He's just stable. He's just very stable. He's got two positions of eligibility in third base and second base. And I generally know what I'm going to get from a guy with decent power at Coors Field who can chip in some steals from a corner infield spot. That's all there is to it. I think it's just a very stable pick at that point of the draft, and I'm very happy to have him. Not too much I need to say about Ryan McMahon. Just a good, solid, I think, pick in round 17. Jose Leclerc in round 18. I did want to have a third closer because, like you know, I've mentioned before, I don't get to pick up speculative closers throughout the year. You speculate before the season, and after what we saw Jose Leclerc do in the playoffs, there's reason to believe that he would be given the reins as the closer for next season full-time. Now, he only had four saves this past season, but he equaled that in the playoffs with another four. The advanced metrics are not amazing. You know, his strand rate in the playoffs was 92%. The BABIP he allowed was only 188 and if you're looking at his FIPS, his XFIPS of the world, they're not ideal. They're not amazing. They're not terrible. If you, you know, if you factor the Sierra as well at 421, it's not bad, but it's not amazing. But at this point, the third closer that I have, he's on a good team. I mean, they, they just won the World Series, and I think that they are going to go into the year with him as the closer. There should be an opportunity there for me to bank some more saves. Whether or not Seawald and Helsley work out, it's probably good to have a third closer in this format. I'm happy that I was able to get him. Uh, where I was. And that was a big snipe on Kevin Hastings. He got really angry when I did take Leclerc there. I don't think the skills are like amazing or anything. I think he's good, but he's got the role. And at this point in time, that's all you can really hope for. I don't know what it's going to look like in February, March. There are a lot smarter people than I am who write closer bullpen speculation stuff. And there might be some guys who could take that role next year. I, it could be anybody, really. But at this point in time, it's LeClerc we're drafting right now, and I don't have any other information that is practical that I can really go on other than the fact that they were trusting him to close out every game in the World Series, and they're going to probably go into next season with him as their closer. Danny Jansen is the catcher that I took as my number two catcher. One of these years, he's going to be healthy, right? I mean, it's not going to be every single season where Danny Jansen has these freak injuries and has to miss 70 games. Like, these last three seasons have been 70, 72, and 86 games. The numbers are good. The numbers are really good. He doesn't strike out a hell of a lot for a catcher. Most catchers are striking out quite a bit. Danny Jansen's only at 20%. Walk rate over these last three years, 8.3, 10.1, and 7.6%, also really good. And we know the power is legit. 17 homers in 86 games this year, 15 homers in 72 games last year. It literally came down to him just getting hit by too many pitches this year. It's not like, oh, his body broke down. He can't handle the workload behind the plate. He got hit so regularly that it ended up costing him his season. And that's not something that I'm going to look at and say, well, you know, he's injury prone. There's no hope for Danny Jansen because he's a magnet for the baseball. He's going to get hit by pitches. He's more likely to get banged up behind home play for sure, but he was hit by, I'm not even sure if they, do they keep track of this? How many hit by pitches he had? He was hit by 10 pitches in 86 games. Like that's, that's a lot of pitches. Once out of every eight games, this guy's getting plunked, you know, once every couple of weeks. And it didn't work out because he ended up breaking a finger and he had surgery on it. Uh, it you know, it happens. But I don't know that Danny Jansen is somebody that I'm saying is necessarily injury prone, even though it looks like that. 
He's not somebody that's ever really been able to get out there and play a full season. And, you know, by guess by definition, he is injury prone, but it's been wacko injuries and not something that I would say, yeah, you can project he's going to get hit again moving forward in the hand. He's probably going to break another finger or toe or something obscure like that. I'm going to bank on the fact that I'm paying a very low price for him as a catcher number two, and I don't ever like paying premiums on catchers. Whether it's a one-catcher league, a two-catcher league, I'm not paying those premiums on these guys. It's just not something that I think I need to do. So getting him where I'm getting him and the potential for, even if he plays 100 games to get 20 homers out of my catcher spot with you know decent production in the volume stats because of the team he plays on, again, they're not, they had a disappointing season, but they're still a good offense. I'm happy with Danny Jansen where he went. I'm very happy to get him here, which was in round 19 for me. Round 20, Jorge Polanco, who is another guy who is a mainstay across both of those teams that I've drafted so far. Jorge Polanco could be really, really interesting, especially if you're getting him at pick 300 or so. I mean, we're talking about a guy who he's going to start with just second base eligibility. Somebody who has played 30, has played short in the past. I don't really expect that too much uh, next season considering the personnel in Minnesota. But he's actually somebody who is going to be able to probably you know, be versatile enough that he might get positional eligibility in different formats. It, it really depends on what happens. But we know Correa, he, he misses some time. Royce Lewis is a massive unknown in terms of his injuries. So Polanco could end up being somebody, realistically, that has second, third, and short eligibility. I'm not going to project that right now. He's going into the year with just second. But it's a thought that you know he might be able to do that. Over 80 games, we saw 14 homers. We saw four steals, a two fifty five batting average, good walk rate. Overall, I, I like the pick. Again, we're getting to the point of the draft where they're not going to be the most exceptional, exciting picks. But for where Polanco's going, it's very reasonable. I, I think it's a really reasonable price. I thought he'd be gone already by this point in the draft, but he's not. If you look at what he did in 2021, we're just two years removed from him having 33 homers, 11 steals, and a 270 average with 97 runs and 98 ribbies. Just a couple of years ago, we're still talking about a guy that is 30 years old, just turned 30, age 30 season coming up. I don't think there's any cliff to be falling off of yet. I mean, we haven't even really ascended the mountain yet, let alone fall off of it for Polanco. He's still kind of figuring out what he can be, I think, in this league. And I know it's crazy because he's 30 years old, but we've only seen like three full seasons from Polanco, and they've all been really, really good. They've all been good in different ways. 13 and 13, he had 22 and 4 and 33 and 11 in terms of homers and steals. Sometimes it's with a higher batting average. He had a 295 average in 2019. 270. He's had 256. This past year was 255. It's kind of all over the place in terms of the production, but you generally know if Polanco is there, he is going to be producing for you one way or another as somebody who is like a four-category guy. I'm kind of counting batting average as half a category and steals as half a category. I'm kind of cheating a little bit there, but he's a 270 career hitter. I mean, we have seen him steal double-digit bases multiple times in the past, so you could argue that he is a five-category player that I'm getting at this price that does, like I laid out before, have a chance to be eligible at a few different positions. So I like Jorge Polanco. He is on both of my teams so far, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in Minnesota next year. Carl Manzardo went one pick before, and I did. You know, he was somebody that I was toying with, but uh, the decision was made for me once he was taken off the board. Round 21, this is another player, and I guess at this point of the draft, you start taking, quote-unquote, your guys. Uh, I took Kyle Harrison. Kyle Harrison is somebody that I have on both teams as well that I have drafted so far. I think that he can be potentially a superstar, and I, I don't know that it's going to happen this year necessarily, but what we've seen from him, even flashes of it at the major league level, are that of somebody who could blow up. In his second career start against Cincinnati, against a team that was doing well at the time as well, 
Six and a third, shutout ball with 11 strikeouts. He flashed it at that point, and I know it's one start. Don't read too much into it. Go look at his minor league numbers and look at what he did in terms of strikeouts. 35 to 50% strikeout rate. I know when you're looking at like massive numbers like that, it's generally not over the biggest sample sizes. But 2022, in high A, he threw 30 innings, and he struck out 50% of batters. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. That was as a starting pitcher. That was not like coming in relief and having three strikeouts here, three strikeouts there. That was as a starter. Like he is somebody that has the potential to lead the league in strikeouts. He could be a strider type in terms of the strikeout rate, uh, just throwing from the other side. I don't think that he's going to do that necessarily, but the small sample sizes we saw were, were pretty damn good. Uh, those strikeouts are not going to grow on trees. And like I alluded to earlier, I kind of passed up strikeouts earlier on in the draft. Eflin and Kirby are not going to be massive strikeout guys, and I tried to make up for it a little bit with the Prevettas, with your Scherzers, and now with your Kyle Harrisons of the world. It's uh, it's a risk. It's definitely a risk, but we saw him flash potential last season, and we've seen it for a couple of years in the minors now. If he's able to give me, I don't think it'll be a full season worth of innings, but if he's able to give me like 120 innings or so, which is probably what he should be able to do. I mean, 2021, it was about 100 innings. 2022, we are looking at 113 this past season. We're looking at about 100. I think 120, 130 innings, if he's able to give me that kind of strikeout rate, even something close to it, because I'm not expecting 35, but if he's able to give you like 27, 28, last year in the bigs, we saw a 24% strikeout rate and a 7.5% walk rate. Even if it's just that, and I think it'll be better than that, then I'd still be pretty happy getting him here. At this point, I mean, round 21 is not a place where you're finding a lot of gems. You're not. And it's a 50-round draft. You really have to go dig deep in these kind of formats. There's not so many you know, great players in this particular range, I don't think, at least not in terms of upside, but I do think Kyle Harrison is definitely one of them. Now, this one is a bad pick. Round 22, freely admit it's a bad pick, and I took Jake Fraley. And it could work out. Jake Fraley was really good at certain times this season. He definitely had flashes of being really nice, but he ended the year kind of on a poor note, ended up batting 256. 15 homers, 21 steals. And there is value in that. He's the fifth outfielder that I drafted. So, I mean, it's not like I need him to, you know, set the world on fire. But he was pretty piss poor in the second half. He's probably going to be more of a DH, and I'm not 100% sure about the playing time. So that was generally uh, considered a whiff, I think, for me there in round 22. It could pay off with injuries, and, you know, we don't really know what the Reds are going to do trade-wise. They might trade a couple players out. They might bring somebody in. I don't really know. Maybe it's okay, but uh, I'm really not thrilled with having him where I got him. I think it's I probably could have waited. I kind of just panicked because I only had four outfielders at this point. I don't think it's the smartest move taking Jake Fraley there. I'd probably pass on him in all honesty, uh, even where I got him. I don't think that it was a great pick at all, which is the nature of a live draft with one-minute pick clocks. You kind of panic. There's no real prep that we've done at this point. So I think it was a bad pick, but I think I made up for it in round 23 with David Peterson. David Peterson is another guy that is on both of my teams so far. The early projections look really good for next season. Assuming he is able to be in the rotation, I'm going to be taking him in a lot of different drafts. The projections, the early projections, which I tweeted out yesterday, causing a bit of a ruckus on Steamer, um, definitely, definitely take a look there. David Peterson is going to look really good if the Mets give him a proper chance. A 5.03 ERA is not going to have anybody interested, but a 3.59 XFIP, to go along with his Sierra, which if I can find it here, if I can pull it up, it was, oh, Jesus, it's giving me, Fangraphs is giving me a bit of grief, um, 396. 
I like it. I definitely like it. I think at this point of the draft as well, you know, good strikeout upside. Overall, just really good upside in general. Um, the walks are a bit of a problem, but if he's striking out as many batters as he has been, 25, 26, 27%, I'm okay with that at this point in the draft. I'm also thinking the Mets are going to be better as a whole, and we won't see so many, you know, <laughs> you know, lack, I should say, the lack of win potential for him. 21 starts and only three wins is terrible. But I don't know that we're going to see that going forward from David Peterson. I think he's ready to be in prime David Peterson mode here at age 28. And I am going to have him on quite a few of my teams. But that'll do it. Uh, I've talked about the first 23 picks that I've made. I might recap it once it's all done. But there will be so many drafts at that point that I don't know that it'll make sense to go back to this league. Talk about the slow draft. We'll see. Um, but either way, let me know what you think over on Twitter at JoeOrico99. Also at Ethos Fantasy BB, E-T-H-O-S Fantasy BB. That's where we post all of our new podcasts and articles, everything else we have going on. Make sure you guys are checking out sportsethos.com as well, checking out our tools on the NBA side. There's a lot. There's a ton over at Sports Ethos for you guys to sink your teeth into. Basketball's in full swing. Make sure you guys are checking out all the great tools and trackers that we have available in our NBA Fantasy Pass. But like I said, that'll do it. Tomorrow we'll talk a little bit about those projections. What is Steamer up to? Well, last year, they actually were pretty accurate in terms of projecting some regression for some notable pitchers, Alec Manoa, Julio Urias, Dylan Cease, and a lot of others. So we'll talk about their projections, both on the hitting and on the pitching side. Just give it a first overview. They will be updated, and then we'll talk about them again. But until then, guys, take care. Have a great night, and cheers. Cheers.